Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, the text that Pete read this morning, sets in context our message this morning, gives you the whole flow of thought from verses 12 to 26, but our attention will be focused this morning on the last five verses of that passage, verses 22 to 26. And as we come to that passage, I'm reminded of a uh, great expositor and an exemplary man of God who called this text Paul's sanctified dilemma. Now, we understand what a dilemma is. It's a situation that presents itself with perplexing choices of two perplexing alternatives that cause us to wonder which we should choose. Many times we conceive of the most difficult decisions that we make in life as a dilemma, And the word is often used and understood as having a negative connotation. You know, the popularity of the phrase, I'm between a rock and a hard place, illustrates that. You know, if if I'm in a dilemma, if I go one way, I run into the the rock, and if I turn the other way, I hit the, the hard place. But the choices of a dilemma don't always have to be negative. You could face a dilemma between two very positive alternatives. For example, let's say someone has invited you out to dinner to your favorite restaurant, And they've assured you that the meal is on them. Don't worry about that. Get whatever you'd like. And as you look through that menu, the pictures of almost every meal seem to be competing with one another, vying for the opportunity to tantalize your taste buds. And your eyes dart from page to page and picture to picture and description and description. Do sides come with that? Oh, I want, that looks good. And you have to send the waitress away four times. Oh, please, I'm sorry. Thank you. Just one more minute. Flame mignon or baby back ribs. Or for those of you who don't like barbecue, like me, maybe you relate better to the decision you face at the end of the meal when the waitress returns with the dessert menu. Will it be the peanut butter cup sundae or the strawberry cheesecake? Some of you are saying, stop talking about food, you're making me hungry. Or outside of the the realm of food, should we take that vacation to Disneyland or to Yellowstone? Or should we take time over the holidays to visit this beloved family member that we love and cherish over here or another one in another part of the country that we equally love and cherish over here? You get the picture. These are dilemmas and positive dilemmas. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul faces, as I said, his own sanctified dilemma, a situation in which he's torn between two positive prospects each of which is infinitely more desirable than a hearty meal, a scrumptious dessert, or even vacation plans with family. The heart of this passage is expressed in the second half of verse 22 and into the first half of verse 23. Paul says, And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions. And to understand the full significance of Paul's dilemma... To understand properly the the two directions in which his affections are being pulled, we need to remember the context in which he's writing. As we've mentioned time and again, Paul is writing this letter to his dear friends, the Philippians, as he's under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a praetorian guard and he's waiting to stand trial before the emperor, Nero. And as the Philippians heard of his imprisonment, as an expression of their love for Paul, They sent their beloved brother Epaphroditus to make the the 40-day journey from Macedonia to Rome so that he could deliver a financial gift to Paul as well as to minister to any of his physical needs. 
And of course, they expect that when Epaphroditus returns to Philippi, he'll be able to bring news of Paul's situation, how he's holding up, whether he expects to live or to die, what the future will hold for this ministry of the gospel, this gospel that they had come to trust and treasure so deeply. What will be the meaning of Paul's imprisonment? What effect will it have on the gospel and on the gospel's ministry? And Paul does them one better than sending news by Epaphroditus. He actually writes a letter to them himself and sends it back with Epaphroditus. And after his customary greeting in verses 1 and 2 and thanksgiving, verses 3 to 8, and prayer, verses 9 to 11, Paul begins the body of this letter, which we just read, Pete just read for us, by immediately seeking to calm any worry that the Philippians might have had about Paul on account of his trials. He begins in verse 12, by informing them. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. See, Paul's imprisonment presented him unique opportunities to preach the gospel throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, he says, such that many of Nero's own elite class of soldiers were getting saved. And besides that, his imprisonment was emboldening other Christians to proclaim the, the gospel of Christ without fear. And even if some of them did so with impure motives, Paul continued to rejoice because the true gospel was indeed being preached. So far from hindering the spread of the gospel, like the Philippians might have suspected, Paul's trials have actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, he has been rejoicing. He writes to tell them that and to encourage them to rejoice along with him. But he also says that he will continue to rejoice in the second half of verse 18. Paul has been rejoicing through all of his sufferings. And as he anticipates his trial before Nero, he will continue to rejoice because his joy is rooted not in freedom from conflict, not in personal prominence or the pleasantness of his circumstances, but in the glory and magnification of Christ. Verse Second half of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that my circumstances will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, whether Paul is exonerated and is released to live on and once again minister the gospel freely, or whether he's condemned and he dies at the hands of Nero, Paul's joy is unshakable. Because whether he lives or whether he dies, the passion of his life, the very foundation of all of his affections would still remain constant. And that is that Christ will be magnified, exalted, honored, and why will Christ be magnified in Paul's body, whether he lives or whether he dies? And to answer that question, we turned to verse 21 last time, the treasure chest that is verse 21. Christ will be magnified in my body, Paul says, whether by life or by death, for or because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in that sentence, we penetrate to the very heart of Christianity. The very essence of Christianity is to worship and magnify Jesus Christ. 
And according to Philippians 1.21, how does the Christian magnify the supreme worth of Jesus? How do we make Christ look as great as he is? We said last time, it is by experiencing or esteeming or counting Christ as such a treasure that we can honestly feel and think and act and speak in accordance with the reality and the statement that to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We said that to die is gain means to survey all the wonderful things of this life that death can take from us and to prefer Christ as more valuable than all of those things so that death is not lost to you. The loss of all things is not lost to you, but it is gain. And to live as Christ means to survey all the wonderful things that this life can offer you and to prefer Christ as more valuable so that laying down your life in service to Christ and his people is not losing your life, but finding your life. It's not the loss of deeply cherished treasure. It's the forsaking of rubbish, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, so that you can gain the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Paul can be absolutely certain that Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death, because he is more satisfied by Christ than all that life can offer and all that death can take. The Christian then glorifies or magnifies Christ when he is more satisfied by him than the passing pleasures of sin or the fading comforts of this life. So that was all review. That was last time. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here on the 18th of November or if you haven't had the chance to think much about that text since that time, I would just encourage you to get a copy of the message and really pray those verses into your soul, meditate on those, those realities. These are some of the most foundational and most precious truths that relate to our walk and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I've tried my best, according to the grace of God, to bring those truths out of that text faithfully. But as we come to verses 22 to 26 this morning, Paul turns to elaborate further on what it means for him that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in doing so, he, he lets us in on an inward deliberation of his own heart, on, on a contemplation, an inward contemplation of his own sanctified dilemma. Should he set his hope on leaving this world to, to die and enjoy unhindered fellowship with the Lord Jesus face to face? Or should he instead cultivate his affections for remaining in this life and laying down his life in fruitful service to Christ and his church? In this passage before us this morning, Paul finds his heart gripped by these two holy ambitions— each so attractive and so compelling that he's torn between them and he's not sure which one he should set his heart on. And as we examine Paul's sanctified dilemma, we're going to discover that these two sanctified passions, these holy ambitions, characterize the soul of true godliness. Those who endeavor to be godly men and women, those for whom it can be said that to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, they will recognize, hopefully you will recognize something of these two holy ambitions in your own hearts. Not only this, we will we'll discover that there is a philosophy, the Christian's philosophy or proper perspective or outlook on both the prospects of life 
and death? What does it mean to live and die as a Christian? How should the Christian view the prospect of death? How should he view the the prospect of life? These are questions that I trust will be answered by our exposition this morning. But before turning immediately to consider the first of those two holy ambitions, I want to look briefly at the way Paul describes his dilemma in which he finds himself, the way he talks about it, the way he describes it. We'll read it again in the second half of verse 22. Paul says, And I do not know which to choose, but, or better rendered indeed, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So Paul says he doesn't know which to choose. And you know, that, that can be potentially confusing because when you translate it that way, it makes it sound like Paul actually had some choice as to the outcome of his trial. You know, some say in whether he would go on living or die. But this is speaking less of Paul's making the decisive choice that will determine his fate and more of his personal preference and how he should direct his heart. He's saying, if you were to give me the choice between leaving this life and going to enjoy unhindered fellowship with Jesus on on the one hand, and then on the other hand, remaining on to make his name great and known and famous through all the world and to strengthen the church, I wouldn't know which to choose. I don't know which outcome to hope for. So he says he's hard-pressed from both directions. Literally, he's pressed between the two. It's the same word that Jesus used when he declared judgment over uh, Jerusalem and wept over it in Luke chapter 19, verse 43. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And that's that word, hem you in on every side. It's the word used to describe a debilitating sickness that oppressed or afflicted those who were ill. And Paul himself uses this word in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to describe how the love of Christ compels him and constrains him to minister the gospel. And so we have to understand the intensity of the dilemma that he's facing. He's hemmed in, he's afflicted, he's constrained by these two holy ambitions. And they are holy ambitions. These are two positive, attractive alternatives. The choice that Paul is at a loss to make is not which misery he can avoid. The miseries of life on the one hand or the misery of terminating life by death. No, his indecision comes as a result of being unable to choose which blessing he prefers. For so many people, even many professing Christians... The prospects of life and death present themselves as a choice of the lesser of two evils. But this statement from Paul offers a loving rebuke for such a sluggish frame of heart. For the Christian, the one whose greatest passion is the magnification of Christ, the one who is more satisfied by Christ than all this life can offer and all this that death could take, the prospect of life or death is the dilemma of delight. John Calvin said this in his commentary on this passage. He says, As persons in despair feel in perplexity as to whether they ought to prolong their life any farther in miseries or to terminate their troubles by death, so Paul, on the other hand, and we could say so the Christian, on the other hand, says that he is in a spirit of contentment so well prepared for death or for life that he is at a loss for which to choose. 
He was so well prepared for death or life, Calvin says, because for him to live was Christ and to die was to gain even more of Christ. Another commentator wrote, on either side of the veil, meaning the veil of life, Jesus Christ is all things to him. And I ask you, are you so prepared? Is Jesus Christ all things to you, whether in life or in death? Is this a delightful dilemma for you as well, to depart and be with Christ, to remain on and serve Christ's people? I don't know which to choose. I'm anxious to do both of them. I pray that as we look more deeply into these two holy ambitions, that your hearts will be ignited to share those passions, that you would know the joyful tug of your affections between the blessing of immediate face-to-face fellowship with Christ and the blessing of life-laid-down ministry to God's people. So let's look now then to the first of these holy ambitions which demonstrate the soul of true godliness. Number one, Paul longs to depart and be with Christ. Paul longs to depart and be with Christ. Verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now, the first thing to notice here is how Paul speaks of death. He says that he has the desire to depart and be with Christ. And that word depart on a luo in the Greek literally means to loosen up or to untie It's used in a military context to refer to to packing up a tent. So after dwelling temporarily in a camp at some particular spot, it would come time for the soldiers to break camp, to pack up their tent, and to depart for the next expedition. And it's also used in a nautical context, the word is, to refer to the releasing of a ship from the moorings that tied it to the dock. So that when the ship was ready to set sail and depart, they would cut the tide of the moorings and it would be free to go on its voyage. And so by using this word to speak of his death, both here and uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, now the time has come for me to depart or the time for my departure is near, Paul is teaching us that death for the Christian is simply the breaking of camp. It's the packing up of our temporary earthly tent and moving on to our eternal home. It is simply the cutting of our moorings so that we might be free to set sail to the place that the Lord has prepared for us. Notice also the close connection between the reality of death and the fellowship with Christ. Having the desire, Paul says, to depart and be with Christ. To depart and be with Christ. It's a unit like that. Meant to be read as a unit. The grammar in the original makes abundantly clear that reality in a way that unfortunately isn't expressed or can't really be expressed in an English translation. The the grammatical explanation is that the two infinitives are united under a single, governed by a single article. I know that makes a lot of sense to everybody. What that means is the point is that it's impossible for Paul to conceive of the Christians dying apart from the Christians being reunited with Christ. It's the immediate presence of the Lord. He says that. 2 Corinthians 5.8, that familiar passage, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. At this point, we could embark on a glorious study of the intermediate state and the, the state of the soul and the body before this, the return of Christ to earth and what happens at the resurrection. But suffice it to say simply that this text absolutely obliterates all so-called doctrine of soul sleep. 
This idea that after death, our soul merely passes into some unconscious reality while our body decays, our soul sleeps until the time of the resurrection. It's entirely foreign to Scripture. And the same thing can be said about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. The idea that between death and paradise, there exists this realm where we must undergo further purging of sin so as to be fit for fellowship with Christ. Both of these doctrines are absolutely repugnant to the teaching of Scripture. The one who has repented of his sin and the one who trusts Christ for his righteousness, for him to leave the present state of this life is to enter immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And it's no wonder then that Paul longs for death with such intensity. The intensity of Paul's yearning to be with Christ is expressed in the phrase, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That's epithumia, which is the normal Greek New Testament word for lust in the sinful sense. It doesn't always have to be that negative connotation. It's used for a strong, yearning, earnest desire. Jesus said to the disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. That's the word epithumia, intense desire. And with that same intensity, Paul longed to break camp. He longed to cut his moorings so that he could be in the presence of the Savior that he so loved and cherished. This was not a, a casual preference like, oh, you know, hey, sure, that'd be nice. You know, heaven, that's it, freedom from suffering. We don't have to go to work on Monday. It was an intense longing, a yearning, a homesickness, and a love sickness for the Savior that was at the bottom of his affections. And yet so many of us, even as Christians, we know nothing. Some of us know nothing of this intense yearning. We have allowed ourselves to become so distracted and so enchanted by the allurements of this life. Our affections have become so attached to the pleasures of this world, the faux pleasures of this world, that the idea of death and reunion with Christ is simply an undesirable consolation prize for the failure to realize our worldly ambitions. Oh, I can't die yet. I've got big plans for my retirement. I, oh, I can't go to heaven yet. I still haven't made a name for myself in this world. Somebody's gonna gotta, he's got, they gotta remember me before I go. And for those of you whose hearts have grown so cold to your Savior, we need to press those hearts. We need to press our hearts only to the fire of Scripture to be warmed again with love for Christ. And so in the next moments, I want to examine what has God revealed to us, the Christian, about our death what does it mean? What is the philosophy outlook of the Christian's death? The first thing it means is that it's going to be the end of our limited knowledge and our finite understanding. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, he says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. And that's just an amazing statement. One day we will know like God knows us. One day we'll finally be able to see the wonderful grand mosaic of history from the perspective of the divine designer. And on that day, all will make perfect sense. Every trial, every tear, every grunt in the battle against sin and every groan in the enduring of suffering will arrive perfectly at home on our understanding. Experiences that we do our best to avoid at all costs now Experiences which God nevertheless ordains that we receive 
will at that time seem to us to have been so necessary, so unavoidable, so necessary to our lives that we won't be able to imagine that it could have been any other way. We will know with perfect clarity how, just how a sovereign, holy, righteous, and wise God could ordain for his greatest glory the massacre of 20 elementary school children in Newtown, Connecticut. And I just, don't you long for the day when the cognitive and emotional dissonance that's created by something that seems so senseless is resolved and banished in the light of divine understanding. And as a result of all the circumstances of this life that now perplex us, we will see in greater measure, in greater clarity, the fullness of the glory of God. Death brings us the end of our finite knowledge. Secondly, death will bring the end of sin. And as James Montgomery Boyce said, the Christian who has tasted the delight of God's righteousness longs for a purity that he will never have on earth. He longs, Boyce says, to be free of sin and he knows that death brings this. In 2 Corinthians 5, building on the metaphor of departure and, and breaking camp, Paul actually describes our present bodies as earthly tents temporary dwelling places that will one day give way to heavenly bodies. And he says, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent which, are, which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Romans 8.23, Paul says, along with creation, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I just want to know, do you groan? Do you groan? Are you tired of the fight with sin? Are you wearied by the war that is engaged with, is waged in your flesh, between your flesh and the spirit that dwells in you? I know, I know that I am. I want to be done. I want to serve and worship Christ in perfect purity and holiness. And the promise that one day that I will, the promise that one day by God's grace I will finish this race gives me strength and motivation and power to keep running and keep fighting and keep battling with my eyes fixed on Jesus and the rest to be had in him at the finish line. Death brings the end of sin, and that leads to the greatest benefit of all. Ultimately, death is gain for Paul because it brings more of Christ to Paul and more of Paul to Christ. Death for the Christian is not merely the escape of the worst that this life has to offer. It's the improvement of the very best that this life has to offer. Unhindered, unmediated, sin-free, face-to-face fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great gain and the great glory of heaven. He is the great end of the Christian life. And that is why death is very much better, as Paul says in verse 23. Literally, much more better. Bad English, good Greek. He just piles on the comparatives, a triple comparative to say, to try to find some way to express how wonderful it will finally be to be with Christ. Much more better. 
just as a, a marriage is very much better than the engagement. Amen? So death is very much better than life if it means that it will bring us to Christ. The Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, in a sermon on this text, puts it like nobody else can put it. Listen to him. He says, why doth Paul not say, I desire to be in heaven? Answer, because heaven is not heaven without Christ. It is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. Where the master of the feast is away, there is nothing but solemnness. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. To be with Christ is to be at the springhead of all happiness. And the scriptures agree with him. Listen to these passages from the, the worship songs of the saints of old. Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Psalm 17, 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 65, 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Psalm 73, 23 to 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? Who is there? Who else? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as the Apostle John brings his glorious report of his heavenly vision to a close, he speaks in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, of the great end of God's people. He summarizes the consummation of our entire lives lived by faith when he says in verse 4, Revelation 22, verse 4, and they will see his face. Friends, Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. Jesus is what makes death much more better than the best in this life can offer. And I ask you this morning, is he enough for you? Is he heaven of heavens for you. And if he is, there's no need to slavishly cling to this life. Everything that this life that could offer you is dwarfed in the light of Christ's glory. If he is enough, then there's no need to fear death. You are a dangerous person if for you to die is gain. By repentance and faith in Christ, the death which was once our greatest and final enemy has now become our sweetest friend. Death merely takes us by the hand and brings us into the presence of our greatest delight. What is called in Scripture as the last and great enemy has been defeated by the work of Christ on the cross so that death is our friend now. But what if he's not that for you? What if, those of you sitting here who when I read those psalms, and ask those questions. Simply say to yourselves, I, I don't feel that way. 
He's not more precious to me. I know my heart. He's, I'm honest with myself. He's not more precious to me than all that life can offer. Heaven really could be paradise if Jesus wasn't there. Just need, you know, football, a lot of women or a lot of guys. Some, also, you can list the things, list your idols. What do I have to say to you if that's the case? The first thing is that it's very possible that you need new eyes, that you need a new heart. If death is not gain for you because Christ is not life for you, then you need to be born again. Make no mistake. You need to put away all of those idols that you worship in Jesus' place. And you need to go to him in repentance and beg him to open your eyes. Beg him to show you the reality of what is objectively true that you just seem unable to perceive. Beg him to win over your heart from sins that can never satisfy you. And you know that they can never satisfy you. That's why you go back. You need to go to his word and you need to saturate your mind with the glory of Christ revealed in scripture and pray that God would grant you the eyes to see him so that you might finally, for the first time, repent and believe the gospel. What about those of you who are in between? Perhaps many of you. Those of you who say, by God's great grace, that is me. He is, Jesus is my greatest gain. He is what makes heaven, heaven for me. But I've just let such thoughts and affections fly so far from my consciousness. I've been distracted. I need to be refreshed. I need to be restored. What do I do? The Christian who has that as his deepest desire but isn't experiencing that reality at the moment. How can Christ become the gain of your dying? And the answer is very similar. That you need to saturate the eyes of your heart with the glory of Christ. It means going to the word of God where God has revealed himself, manifested his glory, going there every single day and more than every single day and not just to check off boxes on the reading plan, not just to read for exposure, to learn the background of the historical context of first century Judaism and all that. Not just to learn new theology or find new arguments in support of doctrine. It means going to the Word every day to see Jesus, to get to know Him, to follow in His footsteps, as it were, observing His behavior and paying attention, hanging on every word, to admire Him like you would admire somebody that you'd follow around, a, a father figure or a mother figure, an older brother. And to be asking the Lord as you read the whole way, Father, open my eyes that I might behold not just wonderful things from your word, but a wonderful Savior from your word. Give me the eyes to see him as he is and give me a heart to treasure and worship him for what I then see. And I trust that by the power of his own word, the sanctifying truth of God, John 17, 17, that he will kindle in you a holy ambition to depart and be with Christ, just as he did for Paul. Well, then we come to Paul's second holy ambition as revealed in this passage. On the one hand, he longed to depart from this life and be with Christ. But on the other hand, of this sanctified dilemma, we learn that Paul also rejoiced for the labor for the benefit of God's people. Paul rejoiced to labor for the benefit of God's people. 
Read with me, starting in verse 22. He says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Now skip to verse 24. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. As much as Paul yearns to die and be with Christ, he also recognizes that continuing on in the flesh will mean fruitful labor and increased benefit for Christ's people. And as he considers and assesses the situation, he recognizes that the Philippian church is a young church, 10, maybe 12 years old, a, just a preteen church, not yet even adolescent church, and that there are issues that exist within that church that indicate that they would greatly benefit from some apostolic instruction. We talked about some of those in our overview message of the, of the book of Philippians some months ago, like steadfastness in the face of trials, which he addresses in the very next passage in the face of trials and persecution, which we find also in that very next passage, verse 30, 29 and 30. Unity is another one among disagreeing brothers and sisters, right? Euodia and Syndike live in harmony with each other in the Lord, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. In humility, humility is another lesson they need to learn, chapter 2, verse 3, that they need to regard one another as more important than themselves. And then, of course, the consistent theme throughout the whole letter that they need to rejoice always even in trials, I think he says rejoice always like three times just in that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, uses the term joy or rejoice 16 times in these four chapters. They need to learn that it has been granted for them for Christ's sake to not only believe in him, but to suffer for his sake and to rejoice therein. So there are all these issues that, that he needs and does address and would like more time, sees that, 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 that this is true, and he doesn't have some sort of uh, direct revelation from God. A lot of people make this argument and say, oh, Paul found out, convinced of this, Paul found out, God gave him a revelation that he was going to survive. That's just not the case. If, if that was the case, there'd be no reason to say, I, I don't know which to choose, or in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, to say, as soon as I see how things go with me, there's a degree of uncertainty there. So, so Christ hasn't revealed to him infallibly what is going to be his fate. But with a keen understanding of God's providential workings, as Christ builds his church in those formative days of the missionary journeys in the early church, Paul becomes convinced, verse 25, that God's sovereign plan includes his remaining and continuing on in his ministry. Again, not because of a special revelation, but because he simply come to a conviction that in light of all the circumstances, in light of everything that seems to be the case, I believe that it is in God's sovereign providence that I will continue. I'm not sure about that, but I'm, it's not infallible, but I'm resolutely convinced based on my knowledge of how God is working. And so he comes to a conviction that most likely he will be released from prison and will continue on for the benefit of God's people. And so as we considered the first holy ambition of this sanctified dilemma, we got a, a fuller understanding of what it means for the faithful follower of Christ that to die is gain. Now, as we turn to this second sanctified passion, we discover more of what it means for the godly person that to live is Christ. In other words, how does the Christian who would be overjoyed to depart and be with Christ in heaven forever, how does that Christian live faithfully when he realizes that at least for now, it's not God's will that he be taken home? What is the Christian life about well, the first thing that Paul speaks about in verse 22 is fruitful labor. 
But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. He's speaking there of the toilsome labor of gospel ministry. In verse 25, he calls it laboring for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. So the point is, Paul's alternative to dying and being with Christ did not mean an easy, refreshing retirement. To go on living on in the flesh didn't mean playing relaxing games of shuffleboard as he cruised the Mediterranean. It meant work. It meant labor, striving, toil. He wrote in Colossians 1.28, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. In Galatians 4.19, he compared his travail on behalf of the church's spiritual progress to a mother's pains in childbirth. Galatians 4.19, ESV gets it right. He says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the picture of the one for whom to live is Christ. This, it is the laying down of your life in order to aid the progressive sanctification of God's people. He regards none of this difficult work as a grim, burdensome duty. It was simply the working out of his own salvation with fear and trembling as he acknowledged that God was working in him to carry it out. As one commentator points out, he didn't complain about all the physical ailments and the emotional turmoil that he would surely have to endure if he continued to live. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. His own desire and longing for this difficult, toilsome, wearisome, diligent labor rivaled his desire to depart and be with Christ. This was not, oh, I, I just, you know, I, I've got to put my hand on the plow and this is just going to be, got to grunt it out. This rivaled his desire to depart and be with Christ face to face. And may we all get to a place where difficult ministry is for us a labor of love, a delightful labor of love for God's people. But perhaps the most important thing to note is that Paul's sanctified dilemma was not a battle between being with Christ and being without Christ. Catch this. It's not a choice between Christ on the one hand and the people of Christ on the other. Rather, to minister Christ to others, to labor so that others would come to treasure Christ as more valuable than anything, is, is itself an act of worship and fellowship with Christ. One commentator says that Paul's was a dilemma between Christ and Christ, between Christ much and Christ more, between Christ by faith and Christ by sight. See, for Paul, to die was to gain more of Christ, but to live was Christ also. And so Paul was not choosing to serve the people of Christ over and against serving and worshiping Christ himself. He was choosing to worship and serve Christ by serving God's people. And that's how this text fits with the previous one, with verses 19 to 21. Follow me here. In verses 19 to 21, we've stated a number of times that to live as Christ means to be more satisfied by Christ than all that this life can offer. So verses 19 to 21 teach us that the first great duty of every Christian is to get his heart in a state, to, to open his own eyes and to tune his own heart to the word of God so that he is more satisfied by Christ than by anything else in this entire world. That's the first duty. But now in 
verses 22 to 26, we learn that if for you to live as Christ, if that's true of you, if the first is true of you, if for you to live as Christ such that all the world, even your very life is counted as rubbish so that you may gain Christ, you must lay down your life in diligent labor so that others will also come to have that same passion so that others will see Christ clearly and be so satisfied in him that for them he is more precious than all that life can offer and all that death can take. We labor to get our hearts right so that we're satisfied in him and then we lay down our lives and all the comforts that we might otherwise enjoy so that we can get others to be glad in God as well. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says he labors for their progress and joy in the faith. What is spiritual progress but growing to worship Christ more fully and in all areas of life? And what is joy but the experience of satisfaction in Christ that magnifies his worth? So put simply, as we pursue our joy in Christ above all else, we diligently labor to help others pursue their joy in Christ above all else. We live to put Christ on display as magnificently glorious. That is the Christian life. And that means, you know what that means? That means that living for God's glory on the one hand and living so that others can find their joy in Christ and satisfaction in Christ are not separate pursuits. They're not two different things. They're the same. We live for the glory of Christ when we surrender our lives to make others glad in God because it is their enjoyment of and their satisfaction in God that glorifies him most so that they can say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's how Christ will be magnified in their body. And so we don't choose between the glory of Christ on the one hand and the satisfaction and joy of God's people on the other hand. They're the same pursuit. We labor for their joy because their joy is his glory. And so following Paul's example of godliness, as we continue to live on in the flesh, our lives must be characterized by the diligent labor of gospel ministry for the increasing progress and joy of God's people. Now you say, that's great, Mike, but what's the application for those of us who aren't pastors and who aren't seminary students or seminary professors or missionaries? And the answer is the application is the same. Because all of you are ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. All of you, the entire church, every individual Christian is called a royal part of a royal priesthood. Priests of the Most High God to this world, representing God to the people and the people to God. 1 Peter 2, 9. So when the application of Scripture, when all, in any of your reading, seems to most naturally fit somebody who's already in ministry, Rejoice, because you're already in ministry. This is the Christian life everywhere you are. You may not earn your living from the gospel, but you are all called to Christian ministry as members of the body of Christ. So the first way to apply laboring for the progress and joy of God's people is to be actively involved and actively participating in the ministry of your local church. And that starts with committing to being here every Sunday under normal circumstances, you get sick. And it means getting up early enough to make it to Grace Life or another one of our fellowship groups every Sunday. It means making yourself known to the pastors and the shepherds of the group so that they can be accountable for your welfare 
It means developing your relationships with other members of the group so that you might serve one another and, and love one another and live out those one another's that we're commanded to do in Scripture. It might mean developing discipleship relationships through a Bible study or through some other means where ideally there's somebody older and, and mature in the faith that can disciple you and somebody younger and less mature in the faith that you can disciple. And it means finding a way to employ your spiritual gifts in a manner that benefits the body of Christ, that brings glory to Christ and that benefits his people. How are you serving? How are you laboring diligently for the progress and joy of Christ's people? And the question you've got to ask yourself as you think about those things, the question as you do all those things, come to church, come to fellowship group, go to Bible study, meet with people, and you do all like the, the structural things, the question to ask yourself is how can I put the glory of Christ on display, the loveliness of Christ on display? What can I do or say to draw attention to him? What can I do or say to throw light, to shed light on his loveliness, on, on who he is, on the truth of his character and the worship that that should elicit from people who see that? And I think if you're faithful to ask and answer those questions often, if you're faithful to put those answers into practice, I think you will labor faithfully. I trust that you will labor faithfully for the progress and joy of your fellow believers. And you know, this can be done outside the church as well. If you have a job during the day, if you go to work during the day, recognize that the Lord has sovereignly placed you in a particular corner of the world in context of relationships with non-Christians in order for you to bear witness to him, to speak of the gospel of Christ. And that's the beginning of laboring for people's progress and joy in the faith, right? Evangelism. You got, they've got to be in the faith before they can progress and increase in joy, and that happens by speaking the gospel. And I don't mean, though, that you should neglect your responsibilities at work and turn every single conversation into a gospel conversation. Your employers are not a missionary society. You have to do the job that Christ has given you to do and do it excellently and well. But to actively and wisely and winsomely build relationships with your coworkers, with unbelievers, so that there's a, a context of a friendship in which you can speak the gospel if that opportunity, appropriate opportunity, would arise. That's laboring for the ministry of, of the gospel, introducing your friends to Jesus. Or if you're not working, if you're a mom and the primary context of your life is at home with kids, consider how you might use that time to labor for their progress and joy in the faith. You might have a, a mixture of a discipleship group and an a mission field right there in your home. Or maybe besides your kids, if you're a homemaker with no kids in the house, there are neighbors, there are friends, there are people who work in the grocery store that you go to every single week. There are people that go to the same restaurants or that work at the restaurants that you go every single week. Be wise about how you build intentionally those relationships. Strike up a conversation, introduce yourself so that down the line, maybe there comes an opportunity for you to preach the gospel to people, to speak the gospel into, into their lives. It really is the case that every Christian is called to ministry. It really is every Christian that is called to live on in the flesh, to fruitfully labor for the progress and joy of Christ's people. And so what is the end? What is the end result of this ministry that labors for the benefit of God's people? Ultimately, it's so that God's people will boast in Christ all the more. Look at verse 26. Here's Actually, don't look at verse 26. Listen to verse 26. This is a literal translation of verse 26, which a lot of translations mess up. Verse 26 says, so that, so we're getting to the purpose, the, the ultimate goal, so that 
your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. Read it again. So that your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. So the point is that God's people clearly see the grace of God that's evident in the diligent labor of ministry and their perception of that grace gives occasion for them to boast in Christ, to rejoice in Christ, to be proudly confident that Christ is theirs, their Savior, their Lord. And that is a a fitting end to Paul's report about his own circumstances, isn't it? The, The report that began back in verse 12. The gospel is advancing. Christ is being preached. Christ is magnified in Paul's body, whether he lives or whether he dies. And so therefore, far from worrying, far from being discouraged, far from being ashamed of Paul's chains, the Philippians should boast confidently and joyfully in all that Christ has accomplished through Paul and all that he will continue to accomplish through Paul. Friends, do you know something of Paul's sanctified dilemma? Is there something as we meditate on this text where there's something that stirs in your soul? Have have these two holy ambitions that reveal the soul of true godliness, have they made a home in your heart? Do you think of life and death as a way to magnify Christ in the way that Paul thought of them to put the glory of Christ on display? For Paul, the most important thing was to magnify the worth of Christ, to live with Christ and to die was gain because it brought him more of Christ. To die was to go with and be with him face to face, to serve him and worship him unencumbered by sin and suffering and how we long for that. But to live was to spend his life, to lay it down laboring so that others would come to have that kind of satisfaction and joy in him so that others might be willing to lay down their lives for the progress and joy of of God's people, to worship Christ in in the manner and to the degree that he's worthy of. My final question to you is the same as it was the last time that I preached. What are you living for? Where is your satisfaction? What is the bottom of your joy? And what are you dying for? I still pray that it's Christ. He's the only one who's worthy of it. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the beauty of your word and the beauty of yourself that you've revealed in your son. May we treasure him all the more increasingly as we behold him in your word here in Grace Life. And now even as we get to go across the patio to hear your word proclaimed again, to sing your praises, to proclaim with full hearts the glories of your name, to hear your word preached, and even to partake of your table together with you as we proclaim your death to the world until you come. Lord Jesus, be honored in your church. Get what you are worthy of from us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.